0: This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery, and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Today, we're heading to a tranquil archipelago in the Bay of Bengal, the Nicobar Islands. The area was devastated by the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which not only destroyed infrastructure and the natural environment, but changed the local culture of the island forever. After the disaster, donations poured in from around the world, bringing televisions, mobile phones and Coca-Cola to the island. Today we're going to explore the challenges with aid efforts following disasters. Andrew, who's joining us on the show to unpack this complex topic?
0: Josh, on the show today, we're talking with Simron Singh. He's a professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada in the School of Environment, Enterprise and Development. Simron spent five years before the tsunami and another five years after the tsunami, researched the indigenous Nicobarese people and spent long periods of time living on the islands. The Nicobarese lived a very traditional way of life and Simron helped rebuild the island, mobilising funds from the Sustainable Indigenous Futures Fund to support recovery efforts. We're going to talk with Simron today about the challenges and complexities of aid and donations following a disaster, as well as how emergency managers can work with communities with a distinctly different culture to their own during the recovery from a disaster.
1: Simron is featured in the documentary, Aftermath, The Second Flood, but we're fortunate enough to have him on the show today. Let's talk about the flood of aid in the Nicobar Islands here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Simran Singh, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, before we talk disasters, I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about the Nicobar Islands and and your connection to the area. Um, You, I think, arguably have one of the last experiences on this earth to experience a culture that really has been untouched. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few minority um, in the world's history that have had that opportunity um, and to witness and observe, you know, a civilization of people who largely um, haven't come into touch with modern civilization. You know, what is that connection for you and what prompted you to become involved with the Nicobar islands?
2: Yeah. So um, that's, that's a, that's a very good question. And um the, the connection is very deep. I mean, uh, from what I have been going through um, with those islands, is it's now over 20 years since I've established. You know, it was in 1999 when I first went to the Nicobar Islands. And um, it was, you know, the way it happened when I, um, you know, how I started is a, is a very interesting story. So it's uh, like before the Nicobar Islands, I was conducting fieldwork in the Indian Himalayas. I was working with a pastoral nomadic tribe called the Wan Gujars there in the the Indian Himalayas. During my fieldwork, I met an Indian historian, a very prominent uh, Indian historian, who was quite interested in what I was doing, and she had just been to the Nicobar Islands and told me that there was so little documentation on those islands, there was so little material you know, there were some some writings, some works that related to one island called Karnicobar, but there was so little known about the people, the culture, and um, the islanders who lived south of Carnicobar. And so she was asking if I would be interested, actually, to go there and spend you know extended periods of time uh, living with the people and documenting uh, their culture. Um, at first I wasn't sure if this was something I wanted to do because Nicobar Islands are very, very remote. Like they are the southern and the easternmost territory of India. And uh, to get there is, is, it takes takes a lot of time. It's uh, not very well connected. Infrastructure is not only poor, it's almost non-existent. Mm. And uh, on, on the other hand side, it was quite exciting to think of going to such a remote place, it would be like, uh, could be quite an adventure. And so I took some months to think about it. And then I called her finally, I said, well, you know, I think I'd like to have a conversation. I think I want to uh, learn more about this offer. And so I met her in Delhi and she was very responsive. She says, yes, she's very willing to help make the connection to the Indian government and facilitate uh, my, um, journey to the islands to start this work, and and so it took over a year, basically, you know, having different meetings and you know establishing um, contact with the government officials, getting you know some funding, um, and also for me to read about the islands because there was so little, and you know, internet at that time wasn't very common in India, so to find information from very limited sources, so. Basically, I said yes, and I was ready for an adventure. It took about a year for me to actually arrive, Mm. which was in April 1999. And, yeah, with very little information, I just went for it. And that was the beginning of a very long relationship to those islands that have become so central to my life. And, um, I mean, I've been impacted because... Because whatever happens there has an impact on me as well. Mm. Because of these long relationships with people and, you know, all all that I I I did on those islands for all those all those years.
0: Simmer, I'm really keen to understand what it was like approaching the communities for the very first time. Can you take us through and describe that experience, your feelings, your thoughts, and how you connected with and became accepted by the residents of those island communities?
2: Yeah. You know, my entry into the Nicobar Islands and my acceptance wasn't very easy. It took quite a few months. Um, so how it was that um, I, I took a ship from Port Blair, which is the capital of the Andaman Islands, that took me to Kardnicobar first, and from Kardnicobar, I was after that uh, the journey was to the unknown, and I had my um, finger to work on Trinket Island. And I just knew in, like, intuitively that would be a good place to go. It was pretty remote, small, remote island and not easy to get to. So you needed to take a small boat and then a canoe to get there. So I thought, yeah, I, it was just through the map. I thought that since there is so little, like there was almost nothing about, you know, about Trinket Island, I thought that's the place I want to go and I just had to take it one step at a time because there was no clear timings of when ships leave and when they arrive and and then I arrived on Komota Island which is the, the, let's say the harbor, the main harbor of central Nicobars. And after I arrived there with the ship, I got off and I contacted the local um, government administration who was in charge of the central Nicobars and I expressed my uh, wish to meet the chief of the Central Nicobars, the Tribal Council Aisha Majid, and um, so I was able to have a meeting rather quickly. And very quickly, I said that look, I want to go to Trinket Island, and they looked at me and they thought I was just wanting to go for a day trip, and then be back in the evening. So I said, well, you know, I, asked to, I started to ask, okay, where can I stay there? Or, you know, I have. so then they realized that I was actually going to be staying there. And I said, yes, of course, I'll be there for a few months. And that, was, that wasn't received very well. There was a lot of concern uh, as to where will I stay there? How will, what will I eat? Um, about language, you know, how will I communicate to the people and they're not used to having outsiders so how, how will it be for the people how will it be for me but I was quite insistent and I was uh, really kind of stubborn I said I would really like to go there it's very important and I could not come back to the harbour and go back because I really need to build trust with the people and building trust meant that I have to live there and How this is all going to unfold, I have no idea, but that's what I want to do. So the arrangements were made and a boat was arranged that I could go to the Trinket Island and um, there was one officer and a couple of other people who were going to escort me there and drop me there. So the only way to access Trinket Island is at high tide because Trinket Island is surrounded by mangroves and a lot of uh, coral reefs, um, which are, so the water is very shallow around Trinket. It's so only at high tide you can access that island. So, so on one fine day when it was high tide, we set sail and, you know, after a while, we turned off the engines and then we had to sail very, very slowly because the the person who was kind of managing the boat had to really know where the corals are and where the stones are. and arrive slowly and to the Trinket Island. And I could see from a distance that there were a lot of people at the shore. They were like very curious. What's this boat, you know, coming here? You know, who's who's coming here to the island? And by the time I landed ashore, they'd all disappeared. So they there was nobody to be seen. Either they were gone to the forest or they were hiding, you know, in their huts, just peeping out. And um, they're shy people. So, and, and then... Um, you know, I found myself uh, uh, to walk to the home of the chief of Trinket Island and Zakis Korak, Zakis so I had a chance to talk to him and, and I said I want to stay here and he was also quite uh, concerned how it all worked out, but I made my point clear that I'm happy to you know, you know, whatever means, wherever I could stay doesn't matter, I will manage. I can live on coconuts and bananas, that's also fine, uh, but that's what I would like to do. So finally they gave in and um, and that started a nice long journey which was which was quite interesting
1: what's what's that I want to know what that feeling is like I mean arguably very few of us will ever get the chance to be put in a situation like that. I'm really interested to you know from your point of view, What did you feel like you're going into a total unknown, into a, into a culture, into a community that, that, that has not been touched really by the outside world. Did you, did you feel safe? Like how did you go in, you talk to the chief, um, you start integrating into the community. What was that like? Was it, you know, was it an instant kind of acceptance after that? Once you kind of had chief, the chief's blessing, or was it this long process of building trust? And, and I guess, did you actually feel safe? Like did the community take you on as one as the own or was it kind of a period of time where you kind of really had to prove yourself?
2: I had to prove myself over several months and years eventually. Yes, it, 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 it takes, um, it took a lot of time for sure, but I did feel safe. I, I somehow had the trust that, um, that I'll be fine. And you know, you're at a stage of your life where you have nothing to lose. And uh, you know, this is just uh, going to be something you don't know. It's it's, un- it's everything is uncertain. It's unknown, but but it's well, it'll be interesting. It will be insightful. It will be it's something like it was a calling. I, I just knew that I had to go there, be there. I I cannot explain um, exactly what the pull is, but I felt. Safe. Um, I felt that this is the right thing to do, Um, and it wouldn't be easy for sure. And um, I was just, you know, felt that I was at the right place um, at the right time.
1: I just want to, before we get too far in and start talking about um, what really is an amazing story um, and and a lot of lessons to unpack. I think one of the important lessons here. We've obviously got a lot of. got a lot of listeners from new zealand and from australia who would be working with um you know remote indigenous communities um in their own ways do you have any i guess um uh, you know tips or anything that you'd go here's the three key things you need to be aware of when you're working in these indigenous communities or, or remote communities um you know, what are those key things that you could kind of, it would be your words of wisdom to some of the practitioners that are out there today um, seeking to do similar work?
2: The key thing I felt is that if you reach out in a very genuine way, if you are sincere, you really care for the people. You don't need to know the language. You don't need to know everything about the people, the culture. I, I knew nothing. I mean, there was there was nothing that I could fall back on. But I knew that I was reaching out to those people. I was curious about their lives and, and respectful. And I was going there in a very genuine way. I was not there to judge them or to tell them what to do or how to live. I was going there to learn myself. And I think that makes a big difference because I've worked with other indigenous communities as well that spoke different languages different contexts entirely but I know that humans wherever they are they ex- they are able to sense if you're sincere it doesn't matter if you can speak the language if not but you know when if, if you're sincere your smiles your body language your you know the way you reach out the way you move um, the, the way you look at them and i I think this is this is universal. I just believe that if you're genuine, you are sincere you are you you're there to learn and not to judge them, I think that establishes a bond instantly
1: so I want to take us back then because um, I guess this is this is where the story um really starts, 2004, um, 8 a.m. on Boxing Day, uh, when a powerful 9.1 magnitude undersea earthquake occurred off the coast of Sumatra, um, which then generated one of, uh, you know, the deadliest tsunamis in history. And and from reports, a 15-metre high wave crashed over the Nicobar archipelago. Can you take us through what were those immediate impacts um, for the Nicobar Islands? Um, and I guess for you, having that connection to the pla- to, to, to place and to community what were your initial thoughts when you first heard that information can you take us through the you know the minutes the hours um, the days after that happened and and how that unfolded
2: when when the, when the tsunami struck i mean most of the world did not know that it was a tsunami or what really happened they knew something had happened um, in, in in the bay of bengal and i got a call i was in india at that time and I was heading towards the Nicobar Islands. I was on the way to the Nicobars, it was December, um, 2004, and it was going to be my next field work. Um, I got a call on 26th of December from a friend and colleague from Austria where I was living at that time and she worked at the museum, and she heard the news, and she called me, and she says, "Did you hear about this?" I said, "Oh, I haven't." So I opened the news, and and I was quite shocked with uh, the information that something had happened in in the area, in the Nicobar, in the Andaman Islands. But most of the news were about tourists who were being stranded. Like you know, so these tourists were stranded in Andaman Islands, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, and about. So the focus was really about how to evacuate the tourists, but there was no information about the Nicobar Islands. I started to make calls. I mean, I couldn't call the Nicobars, I couldn't call the Andamans even, but I started to call people on the mainland if anybody could provide more information. But there was really no information for the next couple of days. And on 28th, I went to the media and the Times of India covered a story for me Um, where I was expressing my concern that the indigenous Nicobaris and some of those threatened communities on these islands may have been wiped away forever. So this was made kind of headlines and and it was um, still real no news until I got one message through a friend who had received a message from another person, who had received another message from one Nicobari leader, with one line saying, Central islands entirely washed away. Please do something as soon as possible. That was the only message I got. This was just one line. And I, you can imagine, I just was shocked and I didn't know what I could do with this one line. What does it really mean? and there were no means to go to the islands. The whole connection was broken down. There was no flights, there were no ships, there was no communication. And it took a few days till I could establish some contact to Port Blair, to a friend who was um, who, who, who actually a journalist and he managed to get me some more information and get on board the first rescue ship that went to the Nicobars. This was on 30th, so four days later, the first rescue vessel was leaving Port Blair, in the Andaman Islands, to go to the Nicobars. And then I started to get more information about what was happening, but it was still very, very limited. And yes, I mean, when I look back, it was um, it was quite devastating. Uh, when you say what. Uh, when you were asking what the impact was, it was quite devastating. The Nicobar Islands, like, basically, you couldn't recognize the Nicobars anymore. Wow. It was totally transformed. The islands had sunk about a meter and a half, so there was a shift in the tectonic plate. So the Andamans had gone higher, and the Nicobars had gone lower. And so the entire coastline, entire... um, you know, the geography of the islands was transformed. All villages villages were washed away because the tsunami came with, you know, high waves of twenty meters, so a few times, washing the islands from one end to the other. And so these Nicobaris villages are along the coast. And these villages were washed away along with their coconut palms. And there was loss to lives and to property. The official number is around three and a half thousand Nicobaris uh, were either dead or missing, but we know that this number is much higher. And um, about one hundred twenty thousand livestock were 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 lost, and about six thousand hectares of coconut plantations, and nearly all of the cultural artifacts that were in those old homes, all those you know, all, all you know, all the material culture that was there for generations. Um, those old objects, those ritual objects, festive objects, they were all washed away. And yeah, um, it, was, it was a complete transformation of the islands.
0: What was the initial response of the community to this disaster? And I'm particularly interested to understand that in the context of um, a very traditional way of life in the Nicobar Islands and say in comparison to another country who might have really well established emergency management infrastructure and how they would have responded differently. Can you take us through that and and what that approach and and some of the differences and key challenges looks like? So
2: the Nicobaris have never been subject to humanitarian aid or even you know, development aid uh, from non government organizations i mean they used to be um small amounts of uh, in development work from the indian government like you know infrastructure in terms of harbors and some sanitation work and some you know primary schools but generally they have been not exposed to this type of aid, that was um, just overwhelming for them, and it, it's it's something that's even outside the world view, uh, that some people, some organizations would come to them, and say, "We have you know all this money, and we have the ability, the resources to rebuild everything, to give you houses, to give you boats, to give you you know money, to give you food." Um, it was totally unthinkable because that's that kind of uh, situation they had never experienced um, and they had no idea why somebody would want to help them so much what did they want from them and usually they have been the history of Nicobarus has been that they have been you know you know in the you know, there have been colonial um, expeditions, uh, you know, uh, people coming to take something. There were traders historically coming to do trade with them in coconuts where um, it was quite unequal. So Nekovaris were always at the receiving end um, of an unequal relationship. Um, and so this was here a situation where there were some you know, organizations coming to give so much and they had no idea what this meant. Should they say yes, should they say no? And um, that was really quite confusing. And so when I came there, when I arrived there three weeks after the tsunami, the first question I was asked by the tribal leaders uh, because of the trust they had in me, they could ask very openly. They said, what is this NGO? And it was very difficult for me to explain what an NGO is and how it operates, and and what the whole system of aid, and you know where the money comes from and what's the interest, and so it's a very complex. It's uh, um, it was nowhere easy to explain except to get involved in um, with the with the with the community to talk about the needs, you know, what their what the needs would be. And all that Nikobaris were telling me in the early months um, after my arrival is that they want to be left alone. And if somebody really wanted to help them, they would be fine. They would be happy with some tools because the tools had been all washed away. They said, if I could have sickle and axe and some other tools to build our homes and with which we can also establish our coconut plantations again they would be they would be happy with that but apart from that they felt that outside interference was actually the main reason for the tsunami because there has been people coming from outside for different purposes very regulated for sure but um, even they felt that it's the outsiders who brought this bad luck to the islands and they would rather be left alone and grieve and rebuild their lives. But they, did, they were not interested in cookies or, or, you know, junk food or electronics or all these surveys, all these questions were being asked. You know, how many people died in your home and their names and, um, you know, what did you lose and what did you own? So how are you related to this person and who is the nearest Of kin, Um, so there were all these questions, and they were like, for the most part, out of you know, it was culturally inappropriate and also out of context, because Nicobari's families are organized very, very differently. What is next of kin, and what is a family structure? um, What what they own? uh, I mean, what they what they lost? It's these are these are numbers, and they don't. keep track of those things. So they were already traumatized by the experience and then was coming this wave of uh, aid, asking questions and bringing goods and materials and they just wanted to be left alone.
1: I think it's a really interesting and, you know, the overall Western... Um, view of NGOs and aid is often quite positive. You know, you see things on 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 the, on the media, and um, you know, as as individuals, we have an emotional um, reaction or, or or an emotional trigger to to want to help. I think that's innately, um, you know, by by essence, that's humanity. Um, but I guess it's, it'd be really interesting to understand here because I know there's been some work done, and and by all means, I think. Um, want to make it really clear that, you know, aid and NGOs definitely have, have, have positive in the world and they, and they have a place, but I guess we want to understand in this context, in the Nicobar islands, where could have things been done better? Um, I'd be interested to hear, um, Simran, from your point of view, what was some of the, you know, some people describe it as this second disaster. Um, and I think even yourself has, has kind of described it as the second disaster from the initial impact. What were some of those impacts of, um, you know, you, you, uh, you just want to pick up a little bit more cause you were talking about, you know, cookies and el- electronics and, and, you know, the community's really going, well, just give me tools. You know, what, what did, what actually happened? What did NGOs, um, bring in onto the Island? Um, what were they trying to give people?
2: It's a very interesting question to, I mean, in one side we see aid as something very sacred, very, very noble because it's intended to help people. This is the idea of being, you know, human. And mm. uh, when there's a crisis, that you know, the community comes and you know helps. And I think that that intention is good. But I think the big question is, what is good help? And and who decides what is good help? Is um, is it the people who want to help, or is it the people who are being helped? And how the our humanitarian aid structure is organized at this point in time, is that the aid organizations have a preconceived understanding of what is good help. There is, they seem to be very convinced that there is a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, and um, there is a certain standard, which is, you know, it's also called the sphere standards of humanitarian aid, where, you know, there is a certain fundamental need for uh, you know for everyone on this planet that they need a certain amount of waters they need a certain amount of living space or you know sanitation or you know and 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 access to infrastructure but this may not be true for every place on the earth because certain things um they we may consider some of those things that is yeah they're they're essential but not everybody will prioritize um, those things um, you know and maybe they have different priorities maybe maybe they want to be helped differently. Maybe it is their priority but they want to do it on their own. Maybe they want a different types of support. Maybe um, they want something that is more culturally appropriate. maybe something that is not suited to the local geography. For example, you know if you give them blankets in a tropical environment, they don't need those blankets because it's already very hot. If you want to give them, you know, shelters made of tin, it doesn't work in a tropical climate because tin houses are very hot. And you can have skin diseases because of that. And so so there are different needs of people in a certain geography, in a certain culture, and also the respect for gender relations. Because you know, as outsiders, when we are when when we are making these judgments, we are already assuming what a good gender relation or what a good family. Like for example, the whole understanding was a family is a nuclear family. Is there is a husband, there is a wife, and there is and you know, and their children. But in Nicobaris, this is very different. There is no nuclear family, there's joint families. There are about forty people living, fifty people living together. And Children don't always belong to that um, couple. Maybe they're not even married. Uh, maybe they're not even together. But when the child is there, they belong to the community. And they're raised by the community. And if a parent dies, they are not orphans. So we attribute you know, stigma to who is an orphan, who is a widow. Um, we attribute um, the idea of sense of family The compensation packages, the checks, the compensation checks were given in the name of the husbands, the men. Assuming that the man is always the head of the family. In the central Nicaragua, this is not the case. It's the woman who is in charge. And by giving, by always communicating with the men, by giving them the money, you're changing the gender balance, you're changing society. You are empowering groups that were not, you know, in that role. You're not talking to elders because they do not speak Hindi or English. You speak to younger people who you can communicate to, and so you easily get influenced by their values, by their ideas of development, by their ideas of need, by their ideas of history, by uh, by their ideas of their community. When these other people, yes, they might be able to communicate to the outside world, but they have no understanding of their own culture. But it is just easy. You know? So there can be so many misunderstandings when we bring our own biases and our own understanding of how the world is and should be, what the needs are, what is a good family structure, what is, what, what is primitive and what is, what is developed. So if you live in huts like the Nicobaris do this would be considered primitive but if you live in concrete houses if you live in you know if you have flowing water like a tap inside a home and if you have electricity then you are developed and and 7000 houses were constructed and these were constructed not by the Nicobaris but by contractors who were given contracts who came from outside They brought construction material from the outside. Tons of cement, steel, gravel was transported under very difficult conditions uh, with rafts and, you know, they had to construct roads to transport all that stuff to build these homes that were not suited for the local condition. Just because they are modern and this is what development is about. And when you are... Introducing new ways of living, new ways of thinking. You're giving money, um, for which uh, people have no use initially, because Nicobari's never used cash. But they got cash compensation because this is what happens when you have a you know go through disaster. There is compensation based on how much you lost, how many people died in your family. So Nicobari's had to open bank accounts for the first time in their lives because the cheques had to be deposited in the banks. And for that you need passport photos so you can open bank accounts. So I was there for days taking pictures of people so and printing them passport photos through my own little infrastructure so they could have bank accounts. And the money they had, the Nicobarys did do not understand the value of money because it is, it is just a number. All they would do is take the passbook to the trader and say, well, you know, take it, and I would like this, and I would like a television, and I would like a mobile phone, and I would like this Coke, and I would like these chips, and they would get it. And the trader would tell them how much money is left because uh, the traders kept the passbooks. So they would maintain the accounts. The nickel had nothing to do with that. They just gave the passbook to them and they just took whatever the trader was willing to give them based on what money they had in the bank. And, yes, what happens is that Nicobaris started to have health problems. They got diabetes, they got hypertension, stress, their immunity went down, and these people who never had malaria, even though it's a malaria-infested area, they never had malaria, they started to, got, they started to have malaria. And there were a lot of inequalities in haves and have-nots. So there were people who had more compensation because they lost more people or more land, and there were others who lost less so they had less money. So there was a big gap in the resources they had during uh, with aid. And this was a big issue. There were a lot of conflicts in the society that was not there before. What changed also was their relationship to the environment because they realized that if they could buy everything from a shop, you know they had all they had to do is to take the passbook and go to the trader and get food, why did they have to work anyway? And why did they have to respect any relationship with nature? For example, there used to be taboos on fishing and what you can harvest in a certain season, what you cannot harvest in a certain season. And there were some restrictions around overfishing and about seasonality and about allowing nature to regenerate over time um, by giving them space over the year. But these taboos were taken away because um, there was no need to maintain that relationship to nature because food is something you get from the store and fishing you do whenever you had the time and whenever the fish was there and that could be sold eventually. And um, so, so basically a breakdown of system of meaning. There was a breakdown of traditional institutions, the breakdown of... The cultural fabric, breakdown of, of relationships, breakdown of family structure. This is very context-specific, and it is very difficult to, to arrive at a place like Nicobar's, and I'm sure there are many communities, indigenous communities, who have very unique characteristics and culture cultural expressions and ways of living and knowing and seeing the world. And if you come with, with preconceived notions and if you come with the same idea of what, how the world should be and how, how everyone should be, then this is um, a serious problem.
0: This tsunami clearly generated that much interest around the world in the global community to send aid uh, to Southeast Asia and further afield to help with the consequences of this disaster. How do you think we can we can better maintain culture, or or do we not maintain culture and accept that in a globalized world things are going to change? Like, what what are your thoughts on on maintaining or or changing the culture of these countries, and and maybe if there's a better way of doing this in the future?
2: I have documented so many instances where they have incorporated things from outside because they have been engaged in historic trade for hundreds of years. So they have adapted to those situations by creating new institutions. When they were interacting with the outside world, they created new artifacts that I've seen. I've seen their material culture, the ritual objects that actually illustrates creating ships or an Englishman with a hat and a tie. And they have given meaning to those relationships, to those interactions with outsiders. They've internalized those changes around them in their own culture, and they have ritualized them and created new institutions to, to respond to those situations. For example, they created the institution of the captain, because they noticed that when ships are coming, every ship has a captain on board. So they created a person who would be a captain from the island, who would be knowledgeable enough to go on board that ship to make a deal when the ship arrived. So there used to be some kind of barter trade. The Nicobaris would give coconuts and bananas and chickens, and the captain would strike a price. So this captain's job was to make a good deal with the ship. You know, I've written this book called In the Sea of Influence. And in this book, I've explained how the Nicobaris have adapted to the missionaries who came there, to the traders who arrived there regularly. So, so I've been documenting how Nicobaris have been adapting and how they have been responding to those interactions. I'm confident that the Nicobaris would have continued to do so. But this aid was very, very unique and very unusual. It was very top down, very, very powerful. Those Nicobaris who could get away from it. And there are examples of Nicobari families who actually could escape this aid. And these islands look very, very different.
1: There's two things I want to unpack here, because I think when we approach this conversation, obviously, we wanted to approach it with some sensitivity, because I think, um, you know, aid and NGOs do do some some great work around the world. And I guess, as, as I said before, we're not necessarily talking here about... You know every piece of aid or or every program that an NGO is taking—we're talking about in a specific context here where it just didn't it you know it didn't hit the mark. It it didn't work well for the cultural context that it was operating, um, within. But I guess from the conversation today, Simran, I really hear there's two tensions here, and I'd love to hear your feedback or or your you know from your experience how we can do this better. But I think the two major tensions here is that um, this notion of build back better is something that's been so ingrained into us now um, and I think sometimes can be misrepresented or understood um, not correctly around how that actually is, uh, you know, applied within communities. And secondly, I think, One of the key measures, and I think this is just a, you know, part of our Western society or our Western culture, it's always around, how can we move with speed? Something's happened, we must get in there, we must start things flowing. That's a key KPI for us. How much have we been given? How much have we distributed? And how can we do that in the shortest amount of time? Because we think that that's, you know, we've got to get that help down to people as quickly as possible. Um, In the future, from from your learnings, how do you think we could manage those tensions better or how do you think we could operate better um, in those paradigms?
2: So maybe I should specify that there are different phases of responding. The first is the rescue phase. And, And that's very important, as you know. Like in a crisis like tsunami, we need to send ships or any transport So there has to be a rescue operation. And this has to be done as quickly as possible. The second is relief. And relief is also very important because there are basic needs that have to be met rather quickly, like food and water and first aid. And these have to be addressed very, very fast. But when it comes to start to build the blueprint for development, whether it's for the short or the intermediary or long term, they has to be a different process. It's not enough just collecting data um, from people like uh, your names and what your age is and um, who you lost in the tsunami and how you're related to one another. Instead, these aid organizations should be interacting more with the the local community. And if there's a local organization um, or an anthropologist or or any other expert they could talk to, even better if they can talk to the community elders by by whatever means possible to understand the local context. There has to be a priority to understand the local context and to understand what the needs are rather than to say, here is what we can give you. And, you know, this is what you need. I think this has to be done in the right way to start with a needs assessment um, to to aid and to to recognize that aid has to be need-driven and not supply-driven. M- most of the time we see aid, which is supply and, and demand um, that they are these prefabricated homes or you know, because they are these big suppliers or contractors and who want to build something very, very quickly. We have to realize that we have to respond to the victims and our first accountability is more downstream and not upstream, not to the donors and we should be focusing more on the downstream aspect of people's needs and what is it that they really require. Maybe the people just need some sort of soft support. Maybe in the case of the Nicobars, it was just tools that were needed because the people have the knowledge to build their homes. They they have the knowledge to make their own plantations. They have been doing this for a very long time for generations. And so it's an assumption to say that they cannot build their homes or that somebody else has to come from outside and build their homes. So this is inappropriate aid in a sense that it's undermining local capacity. It is undermining local culture. It is undermining local institutions. It is undermining local wisdom. When when I was doing field work just in the first few weeks after the tsunami, I was quite impressed that people were telling me exactly what their plans are, what they would be doing next, and when they would make their homes and when they would plant their gardens and when they would build their boats. And um they they had very clear idea of the next steps. But but this information was never collected and utilized. It was, it was just very, very top down. And most of these decisions on how to help people are often very far away from the local context. They're made by people who are living very far away. And, and so I, I think that help is very important. And we, we, we have to first distinguish between rescue and relief, because I think that's quite immediate and and that's priority. But when we want to engage in more intermediate and long-term planning, then it is just imperative that we ask what what the local context is, what the needs of the people are, and what would be culturally appropriate aid
0: And I think there's a lot of lessons in that uh, for all of us in terms of how we involve the community in the really the the long-term recovery for regardless of where it is, not just in Australia or New Zealand, but um, across the world. I wanted to talk now briefly around today in the Nicobar Islands. It's been almost 17 years since the tsunami came through on Boxing Day, and such a huge event, such a huge consequence, and and we've seen so much cultural change. How's life on the islands today? Have you been back, and and what's what's different now?
2: So yes, um, I was on the islands uh, recently, uh, basically uh, in March 2020, at the time when the pandemic was just breaking out. So I was there briefly, and I had to leave because of the pandemic. And and I have been in touch with the islands, um, with the people through phone um, remotely. And I'm constantly in contact um, with them to learn about what's going on there, uh, how people are doing, and um, what are the main issues. And, you know, just keeping in touch with a with, with number of people I, I have very good relations with. The islands will never be what they were before the tsunami. So that's one thing is clear. It would never be the same. There's big differences in how the Nicobars look like today. For example, Chora Island, which is um, a bit north of the central uh, Nicobars, is one that resembles the past the most. They are the ones who rejected aid from the very start. and They went back on their own from the relief camps that were on the neighboring island called Teresa. So these people from Chora, they built their own boats on on canoes and they decided to leave Teresa Island and go back to Chora to rebuild their own lives on their own. They refused to accept things and um, very soon they were able to you know, um, build their villages and uh, revive their plantations and they even brought back their festivals. They they have very strong leadership uh, there on this island and that's the one island I can say that resembles how it was before the tsunami. So with the other islands, there are big differences in in terms of the problems they are facing because whenever I'm talking about out About the Nicobars, I'm usually talking about their problems. And I often hear about conflicts and I hear about different types of diseases like hypertension or stress or diabetes and a lot of inequalities. Some islands also report crime, which was totally unknown before. Young people are leaving the islands now to go to the Andamans or to go to the mainland. And before they refused to leave, because for them at that time, outside was a dangerous place. And even when the government of India was encouraging young people to go to the mainland to study, and there were schemes from the Indian government that was all paid. But the young people did not want to live there and they would come back very quickly because they would rather stay on the nicobar islands but now more and more young people don't see a future on the nicobars because they have been exposed to a different life through television and they are seeing what a good life is very differently and they would like to have a lot of material goods like cell phones and money and, you know, junk food, and they would like to have a certain lifestyle. Uh, and the only possibility to to have those things, they believe, is that if they left the islands and work in whatever conditions, even if they are not very good conditions, they would rather work as a restaurant waiter or, or, or as a lift operator or, or even a door opener or a boatman or any small job in the neighboring islands or on the mainland, because because that is better because it brings money. And that's what the young people today are after. So, so there is out migration and they bring back new values to the Nicobars when they when they come visit. So things are quite in a flux at the moment. And so the Nicobaras are going through major changes. And I mean that these are going to be long lasting changes, not just temporary. There is an introduction of new value systems and um, a new understanding of what a good life is and a new understanding of what the needs are and things What was not considered before that they needed is now they would consider that is a need for them. So we see in the Nicobars a situation where where they're moving away from unlimited means to limited wants to a situation of limited means and unlimited wants which is a starting point of all modern economic activity, that is scarcity.
1: Just last question before we finish up, and it's just triggered me what we were just having a conversation about then around, you know, there's the in- initial, obviously, disaster of the tsunami. Um, in the Nicobar Islands, we saw the second disaster um, through, through the aid and, and some of the cultural challenges and, and how that was navigated. Do you think there'll ever be an opportunity, Simran, or do you think there'll ever be an appetite globally to do something like a social recovery? Do you think there'll ever be the opportunity um, for the Nicobar Islands to recover some sort of their culture? I know you said that one island obviously, um, you know, kind of – divorced themselves from the aid and the NGO and, and they've almost been able to go back to some sort of a resemblance of what they were before the tsunami. But I guess for some of those islands that have gone down the path of, um, you know, the, the, the other path, do you think there'll ever be the opportunity or do you think it's ever possible to, to almost embark on a, on a cultural or a, or a social recovery?
2: It might happen. And there are individuals who are very interested in preserving um, their culture. Some families, like, so you see examples of families who want to preserve their lifestyle and the way they lived and their value systems. There are also individuals who are also asking to document to lang- their language, for example, and the stories and, um, you know, those yeah that their music for example and so a lot of old people have died in the meantime but um, but fortunately I was able to document a lot of their pre tsunami life so I was conducting field work for several years before the tsunami and I have done extensive documentation of their music of their language of their festivals of um, stories like you know narratives of their origins and so, I have many boxes of material, which includes videotapes and audio tapes, and a lot of like tons of notes and um, photographs. And um, so, I am at the moment trying to kind of digitalize all that material. And there is a lot of interest from the Nicobaris Tribal Council to have a copy of their digital archive. Uh, because there is going to be interest in the future, there is maybe not so much interest now but uh, the, the elders, the tribal council feel that in the future you know, when young people, when they're older they will want to know who they are, where they come from and, and that could be a starting point because if there is no if, if there is no resource if there is no archive, if there is no uh, material to refer to how would they ever find out so, I'm, I'm not saying that this archive or um, this type of documentation may revive things exactly how things were, but I'm hopeful that in time, you know, as people, you know, as generation change, as people get older, they will be interested in their roots, in their own history, in, in their own culture. And because everything was lost with the tsunami so rapidly, and... Um, there was there, there has been no formal documentation like besides you know, a few instances like in my case. Um, I think this would be a valuable starting point that could create some kind of nostalgia and respect for those cultures. And there might be efforts by these very young people at a later stage to start, you know, uh, more awareness, sensitization, maybe have a small museum or some kind of a heritage center, on the islands where they could see this material, they could listen to the music of the elders. They could see videos of these festivals that are no longer there. And they could see how it was done and how things were explained and why they did those things and how they lived and what they ate. And they, it might create a lot of nostalgia and they might may not revive it exactly to that extent, but they might start to have more respect, maybe start to nurture, value those things and um, at least be proud of where they come from and pass it on to the next generation and to the next generation. And I think that itself would be a worthwhile effort um, so that it's not just like a black out what was before tsunami that they have no idea what was before and this is what we are, but I really want them to have a point of reference. And this is my current effort at the moment, is to give them this point of reference that they could fall back on. And what they will do with it, it's totally up to them.
0: Mm, and I think those initiatives you're talking about there, Simran, are going to be really helpful for those communities that uh, may have left the island to chase work in other parts of the world and, and come back and can still sort of be part of their their original culture and heritage and, and see that and, and what the islands were previously, which is which is so important to understand um, what what happened and and what was their what was their pride of the tsunami. It just made me think today when we're talking about this tsunami, how much it cuts through everything like this is a disaster that has just cut through the social fabric the economic fabric everything that holds this community together has been impacted by this disaster and we see this everywhere the the disasters cut through and, and impact all aspects of our life it's just it's this place particular, particularly we've learned a lot um and while the outcomes have been have been tragic and a lot of lives were lost and and uh, and culture was lost and we've seen um significant change in the Nicobar Islands, islands hopefully there's some lessons we've learned out of this to take forward into the future
2: yeah you're you're very right andrew um when you say that uh, disasters are cross-cutting and i do make a distinction between disaster and a complex disaster and i've been writing about complex disaster quite a bit and what i'm the way i distinguish the two is that there is a disaster which is what happens during a disaster is there's a physical destruction so for example in the case of tsunami there is a massive earthquake and comes then these waves that kill people that destroy the material life they destroy artifacts they you know wash away villages this is what you would call a first order disaster or it is a physical you know destruction of uh, what was there but then what happens afterwards is you know, how you respond to that physical destruction and when you respond inappropriately through, um, you know, a system of aid that we were talking about. If aid is inappropriate, um, then what it could cause is a complex disaster means it could trigger off a series of events and processes that has less to do with physical destruction, but more to do with the destruction of a whole culture. It is this the complex disaster is really about the loss of the immaterial attributes. It's a loss, it's a breakdown of institutions, it's a breakdown of family structures, breakdown of relationships, breakdown of system of meaning, and breakdown of a social-cultural fabric. So this is exactly what, um, what is needed to rebuild after a disaster. But if there is inappropriate aid, then you're actually undermining. You're taking away that very critical infrastructure that still exists even after a normal disaster. Is um, you're taking away the ability of a community to organize themselves and to rebuild their lives, and 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 and, and to show their own resilience.
1: It's. it's- so interesting, and I think this this episode Simron, has really, I guess, opened up mine and Andrew's eyes. Um, you know, having probably very much a um, you know domestic interaction with disasters and and um, you know domestic experience. Understand, but I guess it's really interesting because we've almost seen the same things, obviously on a domestic level. Um, seen where programs, and it's not just even after a disaster when, um, you know, organisations or individuals go into communities to to prepare and actually do damage through that. Um, they actually do more damage than what they're preventing. So I think it's a really um, it's a really important subject, and I think and, and I hope that a lot of our listeners take away some key points. From today, um, and I think there are a lot of you know tangible points from today that people can go out tomorrow and start implementing. You know the the, the fact around focus on being genuine, focus on building relationships, um, focus on on building trust. Um, you know put put you put put the community before yourself, your own biases, your own perspective and context. Understand where they're coming from and understand how you can then apply a solution to that rather than coming in with pre- preconceived ideas. So. Um, from me, uh, really thankful and, and um, you know, appreciative for you sharing your learnings because I know for Andrew and I, um, you know, we've actually learned a lot just through, you know, the documentary and doing our own research um, on, on some of your, or, or some of your work, um, learned a whole lot of new um, material that I, I know that Andrew and I will definitely implement in our day to day work.
0: Simon, it's been great talking with you today and learning so much about aid and disasters and just a different culture that we just don't often think about. Um, as emergency managers in this space, um, often these are the elements that we forget. And, and really, there's, there's so much out there in the, in the industry we need to learn. So thanks for sharing your insights and experience with us. We've shared a link to the documentary that we mentioned earlier on our website at memyselfdisaster.com along with some of your photos from the Nicobar Islands. Simron Singh, thanks for joining us on Me Myself and Disaster.
2: It's been a pleasure talking to both of you.
0: Thanks for listening to Me Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.